Hey everyone, before we get into tonight's story, I wanted to remind you all about Universal Yums, with Father's Day being right around the corner. I think this would make the perfect gift. If you've been here for a little while, you already know the deal, but if you're new here, maybe this is your first time hearing about it, let me break it down. Universal Yums, when you sign up, they send you a box from a random country in the world full of snacks and candies from that country. Once you sign up, you can get it every single month for as long as you want. They make incredible gifts for people who want to travel, people who have traveled, people who can't travel right now. It's a really, really fun thing to do with friends or with family, and like I said, it makes an amazing gift. I got one for my mom for Mother's Day, and she absolutely loved it. Her box came from France, and there was a lot of really, really good stuff in there. I've gotten some incredible stuff in the boxes they've sent me as well, and I think it's it's fun for everyone. So, if you're interested in trying it out, getting something for your dad, or whoever your parental figure is this Father's Day, and helping out the channel... Check out the link at the top of the description. It really, really helps, and I really appreciate it. Take care, everyone, and let's get ahead and go into this story. As far back as I can remember, my father insisted that I had a special destiny. I was to follow in his footsteps and become a Walmart greeter. I remember one Friday evening back when I was in kindergarten when my father came home from a staff meeting. I ran up to him and asked, How was work, Daddy? His eyes lit up and he said, I had the most amazing day, the most amazing job on the planet. Holding his blue Walmart vest in the crook of his arm, he gave me one of those effortless one-armed wraparound hugs that made me feel both warm and loved. In my mind, being a Walmart greeter was situated somewhere between an F-14 fighter pilot and a ninja turtle. It was a career steeped in mystery that promised untold adventure. My father never attempted to dispel this illusion, never said the job was demeaning, and never suggested that maybe better occupations existed. I had no reason to doubt him. I adored him with all of my heart. The notion that my father would lie to me was an alien thought outside of the realm of possibility. A couple years later, in grade two, our teacher sent home a newsletter inviting parents to come visit our classroom and tell all about their careers. We heard from a nurse, a mechanic, and a plumber. After work one evening, I asked my dad if he wanted to speak to my class to tell them about his career as a Walmart greeter. <laughs> oh no. He said, shaking his head. It's an immense responsibility that only a few can handle. Besides, if everyone had their dreams come true, I'd no longer be special, right? I was disappointed, but I understood. Cheer up, my little raptor, he said, revealing a bag of assorted plastic dinosaurs. Look what I picked up from work. Elated, I jumped and poured the contents on the kitchen table. I selected a jet black T-Rex and passed it to my father. This is for you. <laughs> Thanks, he said. His broad smile was almost too large for his face. I'll cherish that always. In grade three, a new kid moved in down the street. A hellion named Colin. As soon as we met, he took a special interest in making my life a living hell. I remember it was recess, and I was sitting alone eating a fruit roll-up in the cafeteria. Colin sat across from me and said, Hey, I saw your dad working down at Walmart. My eyes lit up. I was so proud of my father. Cool, I said. Isn't he awesome? That's what I'm going to do when I grow up. Colin threw his head back laughing. <laughs> really? You're going to work at Walmart too? I guess being a dumbass runs in the family. He said it loud enough for the other kids to hear, and a couple of goons sidled up along Colin, smelling blood. I was mortified. This was the first time I'd ever hear anyone criticize my dad's job. I'd never questioned it before. Why would I? My father always assured me that he had the best job in the world. The bell rang before I could muster a reply. As I walked away, I heard Colin say, 
Can you believe that dumbass wants to work at Walmart? After school, I sauntered home and cried in my room. My dad knocked softly on the door and asked, What's up, kiddo? I dried my eyes and tried to explain between sobs. The kids at school teased me because, because you're a Walmart reader. He sat down on the bed beside me and gently rubbed my back. They make fun of what they don't understand. They cannot comprehend how special my job is, how it has the power to make all of our dreams come true. Trust me. I choked on spit and sputtered. Okay, I'll trust you. I gave him a big hug and said, I love you, Dad. He squeezed back and said, I love you too, son. Afterwards, we watched Jurassic Park and pretended we were dinosaurs. I was a velociraptor and he was the mighty T-Rex. The encounter with Colin at recess was a preview for the downhill slide my life would take. From that point forward, non-stop inescapable bullying soon came to define my existence. Colin had an amazing talent for harassment. He skillfully tuned my classmates against me, even kids that I thought were my friends. He came up with a hateful nickname, Wally Walmart. Every time someone said that name, it felt like a mason jar of acid was tossed onto my face. I couldn't go out for lunch or walk the hallways without hearing that hateful moniker. I endured years of insults and harassment. Eventually, the constant degradation ate away at my self-esteem and I soon began to seriously question my father's plan. I was in grade 5 when I finally built up the nerve to confront my father. Hey, Dad, I said. What if I don't want to become a Walmart reader? Initially, he looked shocked, but then he sighed and his features relaxed. He sat down beside me and said, I knew this question would come up one day. I can't say I haven't been dreading it. Never lose sight of our goal. You have to trust me on this. It'll all make sense one day. But what if I want to do something else? Like become a doctor or a fireman, I said. He shook his head. No. You must push those thoughts from your head. You must stay focused and stick to the plan. And you have a great responsibility. When you turn 18, you're going to become a Walmart greeter and work alongside me. And that is final. But, I said, no buts. Trust me. He never lost his temper, but I could tell I'd hit a nerve. I let it drop then, but the thought continued to linger and fester in my mind. In grade six, my dad started seeing this nice lady named Lois. She always came by on Friday nights just before the weekly staff meetings. Without fail, she greeted me with a bag of assorted candies. She guessed correctly that sugar was a golden ticket to secure my approval. And then one day, she stopped coming by. I recall my dad was really upset. This was extraordinarily out of character. He was always in high spirits, even after a long day of work. I finally understood my father's mood when we went to Lois's funeral. I asked him what happened and was told that she had had a stroke. I remember I was filling a plate with sweets at her memorial service when I heard from an adjoining room my dad arguing with a bearded man. Maury, you gotta understand. The rock needs to be fed. We have no choice. I'd seen him before. He was one of my father's co-workers. I know, my father replied. I just... I just wish it didn't have to be her. Who else then? You? Your son? The man placed his hand on my father's shoulder, but he brushed it aside and stormed off. It was one of the few times I'd ever really seen my father upset. 
I wanted to follow him, tell him everything was going to be okay, and comfort him like he always comforted me. I had so many questions. I wanted to know what my father and the bearded man were arguing about. I, I wanted to know why Lois's casket was closed when she had a stroke. And I wanted to know why everything smelled so strongly of ozone. I never asked any of these questions, figuring it was not a good time. Instead, I went back to my plate of sweets. As I grew into adolescence, I took routinely to defying my father's wishes. The constant refrain of, trust me, was growing thinner, and the elaborate fantasy he had spent my life building was crumbling. Soon, I came to absolutely loathe the idea of becoming a Walmart greeter. Every time I thought about it, my mind was thrust into the nightmare gauntlet of jeers and insults hurled at me by my peers. And since my father was responsible for this, by extension, I began to hate him as well. If not for me, I would not be Wally Walmart. There's no goddamn way I'm going to be a Walmart greeter, I shouted at my 13th birthday. Since I was a social pariah, it was just the two of us. Please, you're still young, he said. You'll understand when you're older. Trust me. No, I shouted. I know I can do better than that. Why won't you tell me what's so special about that stupid job? He paused for a moment. It almost looked like he was going to explain everything and finally reveal the arcane truths of his so-called wonderful job. Look, he said. I cannot tell you much. You know that. But understand that standing at the front of the store is just a small part. I know what you do, I shouted. You smile and nod at people. That's it. I was screaming myself hoarse. All that resentment was pouring out. As I escalated, so did my father. No. He hollered back. You cannot comprehend the feeling of freedom that is both primal and ancient. If you just stick to the plan, touch the rock of dreams, you will experience a life that few before you have ever contemplated. Rock of dreams? What does that even mean? I demanded. He looked at me right in the eyes, pursed his lips and said, I've already said too much. When you were younger, it was so much easier. You remember... We'd played dinosaurs, and you believed everything I said. I need you to remember what that was like. I need you to trust me. I'd heard that a million times. I stormed away and slammed my bedroom door behind me. The bullying followed me into high school. Now, I was Wally Walmart to an even larger, more intimidating group of teenagers, and Colin was always there, like a tumor. Colin was the innovative bully. He managed to turn Wally Walmart into a song that all my classmates somehow managed to memorize. Even my math teacher accidentally referred to me once as Wally. My mind went into directions so morbid that I surprised myself. Sitting in class, I daydreamed about all the unspeakably horrible things I wanted to do to Colin. In biology, I imagined giving Colin a case of Ebola and watching as he bled out from every orifice. In math class, I fantasized stabbing him in the eye with the pointy end of a compass and then slitting his throat with a sharpened protractor. In gym class, I envisioned Colin being pummeled with dodgeballs, pleading for mercy as all my tormentors turned on him. My favorite murder fantasy, one that I kept revisiting, involved me turning into a velociraptor and ripping Colin into tattered, bloody shreds. Imagining his agonized screams brought me into a degree of peace that was wholly lacking in my life. I was in the middle of a fantastic death scenario when Colin brought me tumbling back to reality. A shit stain, he said. Saw your dad at Walmart again. He waved to me and I popped in the bird. <laughs> What do you think about that? I tried to ignore him. I hated Colin so much, but I hated my father more for providing Colin with all this degrading ammunition. 
I was on the cusp of finishing high school when my father passed away. In the weeks prior to his death, I was so overcome with resentment that we barely spoke. Despite sharing a house with him, I would avoid eye contact and pretend he was a piece of furniture. And on the few occasions we did speak, he did his best to insinuate into the conversation my future as a Walmart greeter. Invariably, this would piss me off, and I would return to mentally erasing him from my reality. Then came the heart attack, and the time we'd left together was counted in days. When I came to the hospital to visit him, I knew that it might be the last time we would ever speak. I was afraid he was going to bring up the job again and that I would overreact. I did not want our last words together to be an argument. I trembled as I entered his hospital room. I saw that he was awake and he tried sitting up, but the effort was far too great. He settled back down heavily. I came closer and sat down beside him. He wheezed as he struggled to speak. I'm sorry, son. I know your life hasn't been easy, and I know a lot of that blame falls on my shoulders. He started coughing as his whole body convulsed. He continued. I fell back on telling you the secrets of my job. I know that you feel like I've been deceiving you, that for your whole life I've been defending a dead-end garbage job. I felt my blood rush, and I pursed my lips. He saw that I was becoming furious, and with that last bit of energy, he raised his hand. I understand your rage, your fury. I just want you to know that despite withholding information, I've never deceived you. The job is truly the key to unlocking your dreams. That was too much. I couldn't stand it anymore. Even now, on his deathbed, he continued to reiterate the same bullshit. Without another word, I stormed out of the room. That was the last time I spoke with him. Later that day, he was struck by a second heart attack, the one that ended his life. Now, without my father, I was alone. When I turned 18 a few months later, I felt lost. I had long taken for granted all the wonderful things my father did for me. He bought and prepared all of our meals and provided a roof over my head. Most of all, he loved me, and despite my adolescent belligerence, I loved him too. I missed him dearly. And I regretted being such an unrepentant shithead. With my father gone, I was on my own, without a life preserver. It was time to enter the workforce, but all I had was my high school diploma. There weren't a lot of options out there for people without a degree. Even dishwashing and landscaping require references and two years minimum experience. I handed out my resume to dozens of businesses without a single callback. After my father's death, I had time to reflect on his life, and soon I developed a degree of empathy that was absent while he was alive. I realized in hindsight how rough his life truly was. He was a single parent raising a kid with a minimum wage job. He was trapped in a less-than-ideal career that was kept for my sake to keep me fed with a roof over my head. And I was less than ungrateful, and I shunned him for his sacrifice. It wasn't his fault I was teased at school. It was Collins. Maybe I should have stood it to the bullies instead of passively enduring their blows. I was a coward, and always ready to blame my father for my failings. I was pondering my situation when I got a phone call. Hey, is this Mari's kid? You want a job? It was one of my dad's co-workers. I recognized his voice as the bearded man from the funeral. 
I'd spent much of my life digging in my heels, actively rejecting the idea, and yet I was desperate. I needed a job, or soon I would be homeless. A part of me thought maybe if I took this job, I could make amends to my father for the way I treated him. So I put aside years of loathing to become a Walmart greeter. On my first day, they gave me a name tag and a used uniform that smelled like new sweats and old milk. I was brought into a claustrophobic office and was forced to watch a dull training video. I felt like the narrator was talking down to me. Be polite to the customers, always smile, and try to make a non-hostile amount of eye contact. My new supervisor brought me to the staff room. He said he was giving me my father's old locker. I saw the name Mori still taped into the old combination lock. Inside it was empty, except for a jet black Tyrannosaurus Rex. I didn't cry, but I wanted to. Then I was ushered toward the front automatic doors to finally commence my career as a Walmart greeter. You know what? It was exactly how I thought it would be. I smiled and nodded at hundreds of disinterested people. There were no surprises. This is it? I wondered to myself. It was easy money, albeit extremely boring. Initially, I thought it wasn't so bad. But then... Wally came in. Hey, look who it is. It's fucking Wally Walmart. Like father, like son. Man, you're just as pathetic as your old man. I have never been so instantly furious in my entire life. I wanted to strike him down with a volley of blows and stab him in the face with a dull steak knife. Instead, I did what the training video said. I smiled and nodded. He laughed and said, Hang in there, numb nuts. You got a lifetime of smiling and nodding ahead of you. Oh man, this is fantastic. I was worried that after graduation I'd never see you again. Now I can visit you every day. I can tell everyone that Wally Walmart has a job at Walmart. He grabbed a handcart and I heard him cackling as he disappeared into the bowels of the store. By the end of the day, I was a wreck. All my suspicions were confirmed. The job sucked. There was nothing magical about it. My dreams were not coming true. Part of me still hoped that maybe my dad was right. Maybe there was some aspect of this job that was extraordinary, but then Colin's shit-eating grin intruded, and I felt nothing but shame. I was about to head home when one of the other greeters stopped me. Hey, where are you going? You're going to miss the staff meeting. It was the bearded man. What? <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, sure. I said. I was seriously contemplating not showing up the next day, but I was too fatigued to offer any resistance when he gave me a nudge outside. In the parking lot, we found a lineup of a dozen people in Walmart vests climbing into an old school bus. The bearded man hollered. Hey everyone, this is Maury's kid. Everyone's eyes lit up. One of the greeters said, You're in for a hell of a night, son. And another one said, We sure miss your father, but don't worry, you'll see him again soon. I didn't know what that meant. I was confused and tired and offered no resistance to being ushered onto the bus. As the bus drove us further out of town, my curiosity began to grow. I wondered where we were going and why everyone was so excited. Moreover, why wasn't the staff meeting at the back of the Walmart in the clearly marked staff room? Soon the bus turned on into a winding dirt road that skirted around a dense forest. I asked the person sitting beside me, What are we doing here? They laughed and said, <laughs> We're going to go make our dreams come true. I didn't push further. I felt nervousness flutter inside my chest. Soon we neared a large gate that swung open, allowing the bus to enter. 
We traveled through a dense corridor of foliage. Finally, the bus stopped and everyone poured out. I hesitantly stepped out of the bus and scanned my surroundings. I was surprised to find that we were in the middle of an open meadow with no buildings to be seen, just an impenetrable wall of trees. About a hundred feet away from the bus, at the centermost point of the meadow, was a minivan-sized hunk of volcanic rock. Everyone walked toward it, and not wanting to be left behind, I followed. As I drew closer, the stone seemed to emit ever so slightly a dull neon green glow. The distinct smell of ozone filled the air. The bearded man saw my confusion and broke off from the group. What are we doing here? I asked. He gave me a hearty pat on the back and said, Your dad would be so proud to see you here. Watch this. He pointed toward an older gentleman who I recognized as one of the other greeters. His eyes were tightly closed and he wore a huge grin on his face as he approached the rock. Loudly I heard a snap and the old man stumbled backwards. He stood back and brushed himself off. He opened his eyes and shouted, Supper time! The bearded man tapped me on the shoulder and said, Look behind you. I turned around and I felt my grip on reality unhinge for a moment. Where before there was nothing but grass was a spectacular dining room table decked out with the finest spread of food I'd ever seen. There were half a dozen scrumptious multi-tiered cakes, a steaming plate of duck a l'orange, and enough lobster to feed a platoon. How the hell did that happen? I gasped. Once again, the bearded man pointed at another co-worker. This time it was a woman. She wore the same overjoyed look on her face with her eyes squeezed shut. The same procedure repeated. When she touched the rock, there was a loud snap, and she fell backward. Then, seemingly out of nowhere, an older gentleman appeared. I didn't recognize him as a co-worker, and he was not with the original group. When she saw him, her eyes lit up like a Christmas tree. Oh, Stanley, it's so good to see you. They rushed toward each other and held each other in a long embrace. Then, from an unseen speaker, music began to play. The pair immediately took this cue to start ballroom dancing. The bearded man turned to me and said, Your turn. Uh, my, my turn? I stammered, but what do I do? Just close your eyes and approach the rock, the bearded man said, and your dreams will come true. My mind did not want to process what was occurring around me. The logical part of my brain kept shouting that this was all some elaborate ruse or maybe some misguided hazing ritual enacted to put the new guy in his place, but then the irrational part of me reminded that my father repeated over and over again that the job would make my dreams come true. Curiosity got the better of me, so I walked up to the rock and cautiously reached out my hand. I felt the hairs on the back of my arms suddenly go erect and a disorienting feeling of vertigo washed over me. The smell of ozone became overwhelming, almost choking. My fingertips finally made contact with the rock. I felt a sudden static shock and stumbled backward. What happened... I tried to say, but my mouth couldn't properly form the words. Instead, I delivered a strange, bestial honk. My entire body felt wrong, like all the proportions I'd grown used to had at once shifted out of place. The bearded man grinned at me and said, Turn around. I obeyed, and behind me was a large mirror. I looked at my reflection and gasped. transformed into a velociraptor. I had to be at least two meters long from snout to tail and two meters tall. I held up my hands and found that my fingers had been replaced by terrifying three-inch claws. I did not resemble the tiny, real-life feathered velociraptors known to paleontology. Instead, I was the artificial beast that existed solely in the movie Jurassic Park. What the hell is happening to me? I shouted. Surrounding me was a ring of Walmart greeters, all beaming with joy. I panicked. I needed to get out of there. Now. 
I broke away from the crowd and took off down to the same road the bus came in on. Beside me, the trees rushed by in a dark green blur. I couldn't believe the speed as I rushed toward the front gate. My path was blocked and there was no way around, so I backpedaled, increased my speed, and jumped right over the gate. Once more, I was back on the road. I didn't know where else to go but back home, so I headed in that direction. Even though it was getting darker, I was confident I knew the way. Now on the open road, I sprinted as fast as a car. I was terrified, and I felt my heart machine gun in my chest. However, the more I ran, the more amazing I felt. This experience was really something else. Something extraordinary. Something I could only dream about. Then, like a flashbang, a message thrusted itself into my brain. Feed me. I stopped and skidded to a halt. What the hell was that, I wondered. I began running forward when once again the intrusive thought struck me like a seizure. Feed me. I continued running now, but I no longer felt the urge to go home. Instead, overwhelmingly, some internal drive compelled me to make a detour to Colin's house. As soon as I was in the alley that ran adjacent to Colin's home, I hid myself in a row of hedges and peered into his backyard. I heard barking and found him playing with his dog. I stuck my long, scaly snout out of the bushes. Suddenly, the dog looked in my direction and froze. An angry snarl followed. Colin bent over to pat his dog. What is it, bud? Slowly, the remainder of my massive bulk emerged from the bushes. What the fuck? Colin shouted as he jumped into the air, falling hard onto his ass. I inched closer and closer to his prone and panicked form. I was going to enjoy this. I raised my weaponized claws and saw terror blink at Colin's face. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen in my life. And then I tore him to shreds as his dog barked helplessly. I realized I was covered in head to claw in Colin's blood. Bringing all this gore home would be a terrible idea, so I ran back to the woods, found the gate, and once more leapt over it and made towards the rock. For years, I dreamed of all the horrible things I would do to Colin. I should have felt ashamed for what I'd done, but I didn't. The intrusive message of feed me was gone. Now, I felt an overwhelming sensation of pleasure and satiety. As I approached the rock, I was greeted by a round of applause. You did it, the bearded man shouted. The rock is satisfied and will not need to feed for a few more years. He patted me on my long lizard back. You've got a promising career as a Walmart greeter. Previously, that thought would have sent me into an epileptic rage, but now everything was different. Now I felt pride. The bearded man had one thing to say. There is someone here to see you. I looked behind and saw him towering over us, a life-sized jet black Tyrannosaurus Rex wearing a gigantic blue Walmart vest. Dad? Is that you? Just remember, I always really did love you. It doesn't look like much. A metal rectangle, larger than a credit card, but smaller than the kind of index cards we'd use in school. It might have been made of copper. It had that reddish gold look to it, but I couldn't say for sure. The metal had a dull glow. Not like it had been polished, but like something deeper in caught the light and held onto it a little. It should have made the words etched onto the card harder to read, but it did the opposite. The thin, precise lines of each letter jumped out at you, catching your eye even if you weren't trying to read them. That's how, when I saw the card for the first time, 
I knew what was written there, even though it sat on a table five feet away and was turned so the letters were all upside down. Drowning. My father's hand covered the card a moment later, but it was too late. I looked up at him questioningly. I'd been staying with him for less than a week after nearly ten years of not seeing him at all. He was wealthy, and he'd always made sure my mother and I had what we needed financially, but when they separated, it seemed he was gone from our lives for good, and the only sign that he was still alive came in his messy, freshly inked signature at the bottom of every check. When my mother died six weeks earlier, he had one of his lawyers reach out to me. Asked me what I needed, and if I'd be interested in meeting my father and spending time with him. I almost refused. But something wouldn't let me. Maybe it was fear of losing out financial support. It was only three months from graduating college, and I'd start receiving my own checks from him the month I turned 18. Yeah, I'm sure some of it was the money, but it wasn't all of it. It was also the fact that I was alone now, and if I turned away a chance to meet my father and come to know him as an adult, I'd be turning away from the only family I had left. He was older than I'd remembered, but he seemed in good health and was excited to have me visit, telling me that I was welcome to stay as long as I like and come back whenever I wanted. Initially, I'd only planned on staying over the weekend, but the longer we were together, the more I realized I wasn't quite ready to go back to my old life yet. I still had a few more days before classes started back, and I felt like I'd only begun to scratch the surface of who my father actually was. He was a good person. Or, he seemed that way. He didn't have to go into work very often, and the times he dealt with someone over the phone or video call, he always seemed pleasant and kind. And he talked with me candidly about his regrets in life, including how he'd removed himself from our lives years before. He told me it had been because he knew he wasn't made of the right stuff to be a good husband or father, and it seemed better at the time to just make sure we were financially secure without inflicting himself on us on a more personal level. When I asked him what that meant, he just shrugged, telling me that he knew it was too late be a husband to my mother or a father to me. But maybe he could at least be a good friend. And then he hugged me, thanking me for coming and staying with him, and in that moment, I could tell he was just as lonely as me. When he covered the metal card with his hand and slid it into his lap, my first thought wasn't that he was being secretive, but that he was joking with me or being silly. I asked him what he had there, and for a moment, I could see he didn't want to answer at all, or perhaps he wanted to lie to me instead. Swallowing, he shook his head. That's nothing for you to worry about. I frowned at him. It said drowning, didn't it? Is everything okay? Forcing a smile, he nodded. Yeah. Yes, it's, it's, it's fine. Everything's okay. I didn't believe him, but our new relationship was, well, very new, and I didn't want to push my father away by prying into his private business. And if the twisting in my stomach told me it was something instead of nothing, well, I needed to be patient. I could always ask again once we'd had time to grow closer. Except we didn't have that time, because three days later, my father had drowned. Everyone agreed it was a terrible accident, though it also seemed very strange. I'd just left the morning before, and he was still at his house deep in the middle of 200 wooden acres when he apparently fell into a two-inch mud puddle back behind the house. He had the land cleared to put in a greenhouse that summer, and the recent rains had turned the soft dirt and clay into a soggy chain of islands, partially submerged in the remnants of the afternoon showers. Even that next morning, the morning of my father's death, the ground was pockmarked with puddles. 
Apparently he slipped and fell into one, and somehow, despite my father's good health and strength, he was unable to pull himself free from the water before he slipped away. They questioned me and other people who had been at the house, of course, but there were no signs of foul play. When I called the attorney who reached out to me originally, I was told that the autopsy showed no sign of anything other than death by drowning. When I asked if my father had any enemies, he just chuckled softly and said that he'd be in touch. Three weeks later, I was in the lawyer's office. His assistant offered me coffee or water before leaving us alone. The man across the desk from me was in his 50s, probably a few years younger than my father had been, and the expression on his face was that of someone settling down to eat an unpleasant meal. <sighs> There's no easy way to tell you this. Death is an unpleasant subject, and the things that come along with it, well, it comes with the territory of my work, but it doesn't mean it's easier. And I also don't want you to think that this was easy for your father. He was a very private man, but he always was fair with me. And I think he was always honest, too. And when he told me that he was proud of you, that he loved you, I believed him. He stared at me then, as though he expected a response, and while I was on the verge of tearing up at his words, I wasn't sure what I could say. When he continued to watch me silently, I just asked him to go ahead with whatever he wanted or needed to tell me. He nodded. Well, the first thing is, your father was not entirely honest with you. In the years after he left you and your mother, he had another family. A wife and two children, as a matter of fact. I stared at him, my sadness beginning to curdle in anger. What? So, all that stuff he said about leaving us because he knew he wasn't right for a family was just bullshit? The man shrugged. I can't speak to that. Like I said, your father was a private man, and while I knew of his other family, of course, I don't know what his motivations were for lying to you before instructing me to tell you the truth after his death. I sniffled. <laughs> because he was a fucking coward. Or he was. Maybe. I don't know. But there is more if you care to hear it. Waving my hand, I wiped at my eyes with my forearm. <laughs> sure, whatever. Well, while he left the majority of his estate to his wife and other children, he did establish a trust for you in the amount of $2 million, with the payments to be sent to you in increasing amounts over the next 10 years, at which time the remainder will be yours to do with as you will. He also left you this. I looked up as he was sliding a sealed tan envelope across the desk to me. What is it? I don't know. It only had instructions to leave it sealed and give it to you. If you'd like to open it here, I can set you up in one of our conference rooms for your privacy. I picked up the envelope and felt something shift inside. There was paper in there, but there was something else too. Something small, thin, and hard. Glancing at the attorney, I nodded. Uh, yeah, if you don't mind. <laughs> Not at all. He led me out of his office and down the hall to a larger room with a long table surrounded by high-backed chairs. Gesturing for me to go in, he had stepped back out and was moving to close the door when he hesitated. You know, you must have had quite the impression on the last days of his life. I looked at him confused. Why do you say that? Gave me an awkward smile. Well, the trust, the envelope, all of this. He sent all that up two days before he died. Like I said, I think he loved you very much. With that said, he closed the door. My body felt heavy as I sat down. All this happened so quickly. Finding him, starting to know and love him again, only to lose him, and then all of this? 
lies and money and weird envelopes filled with... What? Sucking in a breath, I opened the envelope and dumped its contents out onto the polished wood of the conference table. There were two pages of folded stationery, and beside them, the copper card I'd seen my father hide from me. Even in the soft, recessed lighting of the conference room, the engraved letters seemed to glow out at me from the reddish skin of the thing. Drowning. I wasn't surprised by the card being there. Not really. Hadn't there been a dozen times when I thought about telling someone what I'd seen? Asked the cops or the doctors or this lawyer if it was really possible that my father would die of accidental drowning just days after seeing him with a metal card warning of just that. And yet I never had because... Because I knew what they would say. They hadn't seen it themselves. And even if they had, how could a word kill a man? I felt myself asking that same question as I unfolded the last words my father had for me and began to read. I should start by saying I'm sorry, but that would sound cheap and hollow, wouldn't it? If I was that sorry, I wouldn't have done the things I've done. I wouldn't have abandoned you, lied to you put you in this position. I can try to pretend that the money I'm leaving you, the chance for a life I'm giving you, is some step toward making things right, but that's dishonest, too. The truth is, or at least part of the truth is, I'm too big a coward to end this myself. The other part, and I'm being honest here, is that I truly am proud of you and love you. I didn't realize that any of that when I had you contacted and brought to the country house. I wanted to meet you, had to meet you, for it needed to work, but I had no idea I would like you so much. I had no idea it would be so hard to kill you even if it meant saving myself. I need to explain both so you know what you're facing and so you don't think I'm so insane, though. It might be a tall order given what I'm about to tell you. Still, I have to try. If only for you to have the best shot of beating it. Or at least know what your options are. I'm a very wealthy man. Some would consider me a very powerful man as well. But as with everything, the wealth and power comes with sacrifices. I've done things I'm not proud of, and I've made enemies along the way. Most of them can't touch me. Wealth can insulate you from most things if you have a brain. But there are some... The metal card enclosed with this letter is called a funerary. It is, uh, for lack of a better or specific term, a cursed object. Despite several years and much expense and effort, I still don't know exactly who put it on me. I only know what I do about it as a consequence of the same money and energy. When I first found it laying next to me on the pillow, I didn't know what it was. A debit card or a pass key, perhaps. And then it began to change in my hand. As I watched... Amazed, letters formed onto its surface. Drowning. At the time, I had no clue what that meant. But as I learned about funeraries, it became all too clear. Initially, the funerary is like a death omen. When you first touch it, or it is bound to you, it will tell you the manner in which you will die. Not where or when, or who else might be involved. Just how. And for days, or months, or years, it will just stay like that. You can try to throw it away, but it will find its way back to you. If you melt it, or destroy it, same thing. Always just that small detail of your death and nothing else taunting you and filling you with dread. Mine was like that for over four years. It's 
funny, you know. My father, your grandfather, used to joke about death. He'd say that he has seen exactly zero proof that he'd ever die until he did. He wasn't inclined to believe it. Now everyone knows intellectually that they're going to die, but to have some proof... Not the concept or the hypothetical inevitability of it, but actual proof of how you're going to go. Dread can be like gravity. It pulls on you. And the closer it drags you, the more the weight of it starts to buckle your bones and twist you out of shape. It doesn't take long before you don't recognize yourself anymore. I don't think that I'd always been willing to sacrifice someone else to stay alive, but by the time the other side of the card came to life, I already knew what it meant and was eager for a chance to put some innocent lamb's blood on my door. Even if it was you. When your death is growing close, the other side of the card will change. It will just be a name, and I guess if you don't know what it means, it does you very little good. Maybe that's part of the trick of the curse. If you don't understand what it's asking for, you can't escape it. But I understood. I had the resources to find out what it was and what it did. So when I had the image of the card suddenly burning in my mind, I quickly pulled it from my safe and examined it. As I watched, the blank back of the card spelled out your name. The funerary only tells a name for one purpose, so that the cursed can offer that person's life in exchange for their own. If they want to avoid their death omen, they have to kill the named person with their own hand. Apparently, it's always someone you know or will know soon after. The window of time between the name appearing and the fulfillment of the death omen varies, but... It's always within a few months. Time enough for you to decide what you value most. When I walked out to greet you, hug you, and welcome you into my home, I had no question what I was going to do. I already had the sedatives to slip into your food, the drugs to inject, more than enough heroin to kill you quickly and humanely in your sleep. When I called the police, no one would think any more that my estranged daughter apparently had a drug problem that she'd taken some of my legally prescribed sedatives on top of the illegal drugs she'd brought into my home. That I was the victim in all of this. I didn't like the idea of killing you or lying about you after your death, but it felt necessary to protect me and my family. But, you're my family too. I see myself in you, and I see your mother, who, despite everything, I really did love once upon a time. I found myself stalling, putting off your death every day we spent together, even as I felt mine drawing even closer. I was terrified. I still am. But I've come to realize I'm more afraid of hunting you than I am of dying, and so I'll accept what I have in store. And my hope is that you'll believe what I'm telling you and know that I mean it to help you. And in that knowledge, forgive me a little for this last. Because the funerary isn't just a curse of the person. It's a curse of the bloodline. It either stops when everyone in that family is dead or someone has sacrificed another in their place. I can select who in my family gets it on my death, but if I don't choose, it's random until everyone is gone or an outsider is sacrificed. I could tell you that I picked you because you're the oldest of my children and it would become your first anyway, but that'd be a lie. It could have come just as easily for my wife or other children, and while I do love you, I have to admit I love them more. So please, for the sake of you... So please, for your sake and theirs, do the smart thing, the hard thing. When it gives you a name, you kill them in your place. By my blood do I find you. By my will do I blind you. Offer yourself to another. The price must be paid and the covenant kept.
so as it was, and so as it will ever be. Salah. When I put down the letter, with trembling hands I could already feel the change. Not just in the atmosphere, but in me. As leaden as I had felt before, there was a new weight and pressure on me now. Looking over at the metal card, the funerary, I saw that the word etched across its skin had changed. Burning. I guess I was lucky. I had ten years. Ten years of living my life, of learning to deal with the dread and lying to myself that my father had been wrong. I tried to get rid of it, of course, to destroy it, but it always came back. And after a while, I just felt grateful that a name hadn't appeared on the other side yet. And then I met you. And well, I fell for you right away. The last six years have been the best of my life, and I can't imagine what life would be like without you. But that's the thing, isn't it? There's so much we can't imagine. I could never imagine curses being real or having to hurt or kill another person just to live. And the idea of hurting you? I don't even know how to even start thinking about that in terms I can understand. I also can't imagine death or dying or what comes after. The idea of an afterlife, I don't understand, or nothing at all. It, it terrifies me. And my inability to even think about it, to truly imagine not existing or living as I am for as long as I can, there's a, there's a purity in that fear, to that dread that transcends even our love. Like my father said, dread is like gravity. And perhaps it has twisted me into something terrible, I don't know. What I do know is that I have to be free of the crushing weight of it. Even if it means losing you. That's why I have you in that box. It's all rigged up properly. I paid someone quite a bit of money to make sure it was done right. When this recording stops, the box will fill with gas... And you'll just relax and go to sleep until it's over. And before you ask, yes, I am the one that turned it all on. It has to be my own hand, as horrible as that is. But don't worry, it will all be over soon. And I'm sorry, even if my father would say such an apology is hypothetical in a situation like this. Just remember, I always really did love you. I just love myself more. Before I let you all go for the night to go about whatever you may be doing, I have one question for you based around our story. We've been doing this a lot lately, and I think it's a lot of fun, so I want to keep doing it. If you had the chance to have one wish granted, what would it be? Would you want to have, like in the story, would you like to have another dance with a loved one? Would you like to just reunite with a loved one? I think I know what I would want to do, but it's a little personal, and I don't feel super comfortable sharing it. But if you feel comfortable in sharing what your one wish would be, absolutely feel free to do so. I think it'd be really interesting to see what everyone thinks and to get your comments down in this in this comment section below. Sorry. Um, but, without further ado, I want to give a thank you to all of our $5 patrons and members. That is Absinthe Alice, Amethyst, Amet, Bubbly Panda, Caroline, Christina Smith, CT, Deborah Tychus, Elizabeth Watkins, LSG, Furious Weasel, If in Doubt, Flood Out, Jennifer Dameron, Jesse Jess Jess, Justinia Zaromsky, Karen Barrett, Kat, Kathy Flanning, Lee Riggs, Laura, Lindsay Pruitt, Melody Evans, Melissa Berwick, 
Mindy Bannon, Moon Potato, Nicholas Moore, Nora, Nova Nocturne, Patricia Rodea, PJ Masks, Ray Clegg, Sentinel, The New On Gum 24, Tiger Princess, Tish Love, Triumph, and Victoria Step. That is the first time I've done that in one take in about three or four weeks. I'm not even kidding. Thank you all to everyone. Thank you to everyone for the continued support. And thank you to everyone who stops by and watches the videos and leaves a nice comment. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I hope to see you next time. Thanks again, everyone, for listening. Have a wonderful day, afternoon, or evening, wherever you are. And, of course, take care of yourselves and those around you. Sweet dreams, everyone.